Hello, I'm Sue Nelson and welcome to another episode of the Create the Future podcast brought to you by the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering. Now, depending on what you read, artificial intelligence will either transform our lives or destroy humanity. It's a subject that produces excitement and fear, especially within the fertile land of science fiction. AI, however, is grounded in reality and engineering. And this is the perfect opportunity to hear from two AI experts about its benefits, ethical issues, the future, and why we should sometimes proceed with caution. I'm joined by Dame Wendy Hall, Professor of Computer Science at the University of Southampton. She's someone who helps shape engineering policy, and she was co-author of the government report Growing the Artificial Intelligence Industry in the UK, which led to the creation of the Office for AI and a £1 billion deal for the AI sector. Thank you very much for joining us, Wendy. Thank you. Good to be here. Later in the podcast, we'll also be hearing from someone I know you're, you're familiar with. It's technology entrepreneur Azim Azar. So first of all, I just want you to listen to this. This is how he defined AI. Artificial intelligence is this catch-all idea that somehow we're going to get computers to undertake some new tasks, tasks that we often thought were things that humans uh, were exceptionally good at. Uh, The reality is that we should think about this as being um, an increase in our basic cognitive abilities. I think over the next few years, what we're likely to see is that things that humans could do, like recognise what's in a picture or translate between languages or transcribe text, we're going to be able to get computers uh, to do. And that's what AI will mean for most of us over the next few years. Wendy, does that tie in with how you view AI? Yes and no. That's a very academic response. Um, (laughs) AI catch-all phrase. It is because the meaning of AI has changed over the 50 years since it was first used. Ideas about machines that could think or outperform humans have been around in science fiction for a while. Um, But the whole area started really with the study of this, that we now call AI, artificial intelligence, started with Alan Turing in 1950 when he published his paper, which effectively was a paper about can machines think. And he really got the whole idea going, because this was before we had computers, of course. And um, he was envisioning a world where we have computers that could think as human beings could. Um, Now that is what started the idea and the it was the term was coined in the states in the, in the 1960s but today when we talk about artificial intelligence we really mean machine learning and this this has come out of the uh, neural network advances and it's all about machines being able to process and analyze a lot of data very quickly to ha- to come up with answers, decisions, recognize a face, the things that Azim talked about. So it's it's moved that bit of AI. It's not about can machines think like human beings. It's can machines do certain tasks better than human beings, faster, better. And it's interesting, Azim used two examples. One is face recognition. Now, when I started in computer science in in the mid-'80s, 
lots of people said face recognition by machine was going to be impossible. Because the wonder, one of the wonderful things about the brain is we can look at a picture and work out what it's about. And people were saying in the 80s, machines will not be able to do this. And today we have machines that, because they've been trained on lots and lots and lots of faces and the algorithms are better, uh, faster machines, the world has technology that can recognise a face, sometimes even from just the eyes. So even if people are wearing a mask, the machine can recognise a face, which a human being can't do. Then Azim also talked about natural language processing and speech translation, which is something human beings, if they're specially trained, are very can be very good at. Um, that actually is easier for a machine because it can be trained on lots and lots of data and can do that machine translation much faster than most human beings can. So that's an example of what machines can do better than almost most human beings on the planet. That's right, actually, because I use a program that transcribes radio interviews yeah. sometimes and years ago i you know they were they yeah. were useless and although yes you sometimes get, get mistakes, slight little yeah. mistakes they're remarkably accurate well, I, and they save time i go to china a lot and i i'm never going to have the time or the you know sort of co- ability to concentrate enough to learn mandarin ever but I, I can use a translation program like Google Translate to actually show someone a word, which is in most circumstances enough to get you by. You know, I'm looking for the station. Translate the word station into Mandarin and they can help you. That is amazing. And that was a very specialist talent before that we now have on our mobile phones. But face recognition, as I said, all human beings, apart from people who have memory problems or face binders problems, all human beings can recognise faces. And is this so you see cap- my contrast Yeah, is this here. why with capture then they make you tick the boxes with the traffic lights? In? Well, this was what Azim said on the panel we had at the Grand Challenges uh, Summit the other week. I'm so naive. I hadn't, hadn't realised that when Google used Capture to test whether you're a robot and give you a set of images and ask you to pick out the traffic lights or the mountains or the road, I just assumed that was checking whether I was a robot or not. Me too. Right? But actually what Azim told me was they're using it to train their uh, algorithms for their automated vehicles. <laughs> and I, I should have known that because people have used Capture, which was um, something that's been around for a while, came out of uh, uh, research. Uh, Louis van Arm invented it ages ago to do, help do trans- machine translation of handwritten documents, scripts. Uh, so I hadn't thought that that was what Google was using it for. And this is part of the problem, is that... It is, isn't it? Because people don't know that and people, have not and, told and you my why you new, I'm it. developing a new uh, seminar, um, which I'm going to call The Future is Fake, because actually we can fake anything now. I mean, video, text, sounds, music. You, can, you really can fake anything. And I think we have a serious issue in the future. What, who, which sources do you trust? And how do we get around this problem that any, anybody can fake anything and therefore in all sorts of walks of life that's going to cause really difficult problems? I think before we get on some of the, the more Negatives. ethical yes, yeah. <laughs> issues of, of AI, it's good to hear something like translation, facial recognition. People can see how there's a very positive use for these technologies mm. 
perhaps not realising that it is AI, is there any other sort of area within society that people are perhaps using on a daily basis or a regular basis without realising that it is AI? Well, um, Google. <laughs> Just use a search engine. When you get that list, that recommended link, or list of hundreds of links, that's all done by using AI, really. It's information retrieval. could retrieval. be a help or a hindrance, of course. Well, it's because it's a recommender system. So it's not... They do use machine learning these days, of course, but when they started out, it was it was a recommender system. It was an expert system, and basically, we actually train it. So every time that um, you use a search engine like Google and you click on a link that's offered to you, and of course, sometimes it's advertising. That's another whole story about the monetization. But you click on a link that's offered to you, and then your response to that, whether you actually look at that page or not and stay on it, Google will register that and it will use that, what you do, to help the performance of its systems. So basically, if you like something like by clicking on it, that moves up the ranking. Do you think people sometimes confuse AI with automation? Uh, yes, because often the word automation is often linked to robots and um, manufacturing and I think that you know for a long while we've had automation in industry that is not necessarily AI I mean the last industrial revolution for example um, and the technical revolution generally my father was an accountant and did everything by hand dividing pounds shillings and pence by pounds shillings and pence all the ledgers had to be duplicated by hand hundreds of people managing the accounts for a big company by hand by the time he retired they were using calculators not computers now of course all that's done by computers but we have more people working in the finance industry than ever before so what that technology has done has enabled the the hard grunt work is done by a machine it's enabled the creation of lots of new jobs that <laughs> leads us into all the things that we've had problems with, with the financial crash, where they're not quite sure what the computers are doing. And that, you know, you always go from the, this is fantastic, to can we actually understand and keep control of what, what is being automated? So, yeah, I think automation is um, mixed up. They are, of course, synergistic in a way. And, you know, robots will all have use AI if, if they're doing anything other than just mechanical. It's, I mean, this is partly why AI is sort of catnip for, for the media and, and the coverage is, is not always helpful, mm. I think, mm. for, for, for the public. So, what were you going to say? Well, I was going to say that when you, um, you, you know, when you click on the terms and conditions to use something and we all know that we click on that because otherwise we don't move forward. We never read them. And then you get the cookies and people just click and say, yes, okay. Now, cookies use AI, basically, because that's really picking up your profile and using your profile to determine what information you get given, which is useful for us, but it also builds a profile in the company database, and that's what we need to worry about what they do with it. On the other hand, face recognition. So people don't, what I'm, the point I'm trying to make is people don't know what they're doing when they're kick, clicking on a cookie. It's that's true, it. because of, but you don't have a chance. If you, you, no, you, you can't don't read have that article if you don't yes, click on exactly. the So you do it, but people don't understand that. Face recognition, and we all see the scare stories about what happens with China, in China with face recognition and surveillance society, but increasingly we're using it. Our border forces are using it, our police are using it, because it's a really useful tool. And it's a, I mean, when I come back into Heathrow, uh, I put my passport in the machine and it picks up on my face. That's what it's checking. So effectively, we're building global databases of people's faces that the machines can recognise. And 
people will understand that. I think this, this is where we're going to start to see backlashes because people understand that their face is being used to recognise them and that, can, that will frighten people and might move us into a, more of a debate about who does what with that image of you and what that, what, who are they allowed to share it with. Well, this is what um, Lord Brown, who's the chairman of the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering Foundation, had to say about AI in our very first Create the Future podcast. AI is lifted in a, in a sea of hype. And so people get worried about, of course, the hype leading to conclusions that may not be real, that robots will eat us all or uh, we will have, uh, you know, we would all be extinct because machines will take over. This is far from the truth. AI is very important and will be developed, I'm sure, for many applications. The idea of general intelligence being artificial will require us, I think, to first define what we mean by general intelligence. No one's got there yet. So we've got a long time to go, maybe infinity. Uh, I like to think that a lot of these scares need to be put in place by people who understand a little bit more of the context. Well, I'm with someone who definitely, hopefully, I <laughs> understands a lot of the context of, uh, of this. Wendy, what's your definition of general intelligence as opposed to artificial intelligence? Well, you usually talk about general artificial intelligence, but I maybe he's alluding to how do we define intelligence anyway, which is always the problem. You know, how do we how do we define intelligence in terms of what we do as as human beings what makes us intelligent and do we have things additional features like a conscience that machines won't have so i i have a lot of sympathy with what lauren brown said and it is we are a long way off ever having any idea how to build a um, software systems a machine that has any sort of general intelligence AI is going to be, as he said, incredibly important. I wouldn't have done all the work I did done on with the, the review and the sector deal if I didn't believe that. I think AI can make our lives a lot better. There will be job losses, but there'll be huge job creation. Um, so many people can get involved in AI. You don't have to be a machine learning programmer. And it will help us in so many fields like health and education and energy and transport. And it is going to transform our lives. But I do think we have to be wary of the future because i think there are futures that could be unpleasant or for us before we get to general intelligence if machines dominate in terms of decision making without keeping the human in the loop and this issue of um, understanding why machines made a decision is here today it's and not, that's the it's, thing that frustrates a lot of people is yes. that you don't get to speak to a human being it's not just getting to speak to i think it's a, no, you're right it's a decision by that, a but, human being yes and we're talking sort of about two different things but people do you know you naturally go to this because um in my future is fake you know um i know you're a human being because i'm sitting here looking at you but generally if when you're talking to something you can't see you have no idea if that's a human in the in the near future you won't know whether that's a human being that's or that's no machine. different to the early days of the internet and still continues no, in no. that you don't know whether the person you may be Yes, speaking to yes, you via yes. whether it's a dating app or just email yes. or somebody yes. doing a chat bot for a store or a company, mm. whether that's a real person but or not. But we're going to be getting a lot more of it. 
right? And when you're dealing with a company, you don't know if you're going to be dealing with um, a human being or a robot. Do we need companies when, they, when they're selling stuff to us or telling us why we haven't got our insurance or why our insurance gone, has gone up or why we can't book that ticket at that price? Do we need the company to tell people, actually, this is a robot, not a human being? Effectively, then, we've got a really good technology, a, a transformative technology that, as you say, is going to make our future better. It's going to advance In a it. lot of ways, yeah. The, the difficulty is in information and data in mm. terms of consent mm. and this, you know, what's fake, what's, mm. what's not. So they're these sort of ethical questions. How do we deal with this? I know it's something that lots well, of people um, are thinking about, but how do we keep a... I suppose it's how do we control it? I think at the moment we have to talk about, first of all, ethics is um, something that is, is quite an abstract concept. No one taught me about ethics when I took my driving test. right? But we expect a car to have ethical principles in terms of the algorithms that is used for the car to operate on our streets, deciding which people it will kill in a certain circumstance. Right, you what? know that. No, so, an automated car. You've you're coming. You're, you've got a passenger in the car in the front seat. You're coming up to a pedestrian crossing. There's a mother and baby rush out on the crossing. Do you kill the mother and baby, or do you drive the car into the brick wall at the side of the road? It's like an passenger? episode from The Good Place. Yes. So, you know, this is the the sort of decision that we make in a split second and some you know nobody talks about the ethical you just try and do the least damage you can in that situation a car will have to make a decision as to what to do at that point um, I mean, and you know, which brings it to it's, it's only as ethical as the people who program it well it? potentially or the people who buy it right uh, are you going to buy a car where the decision would be to save the mother and baby on the pedestrian crossing and potentially kill the passenger you have <laughs> <laughs> you not heard this good. before now <laughs> this is extremes right it's extreme so that's what ethics does it looks at what are the what are the boundaries on this where are the the big decisions going to have to be made and um so i think that we will use automated transport in all sorts of controlled circumstances but having having automated transport on our streets with pedestrians and all the things that go wrong on an open street with cars being driven by human beings uh, and pedestrians and vans stopping by the side of the road and cyclists, I think we're a long way off that. But coming back to this idea of, um, you know, general intelligence, so my point was there about ethics being something that is quite abstract, and we have to think very... It's going to take us a long time to work this through, but we can't wait for the the ethicists to tell us how to do this because a lot of it will evolve as the technology evolves. And so what I talk about doing things in a socially responsible way, and often it's about making sure there is a human involved in the, in the signing off of the process. So if you've got an AI system that's looking at, say, MRI scans to detect uh, some sort of disease, tumours, cancers, whatever, then and a decision's going to be made on the basis of the results of that scan as to whether somebody has treatment and what treatment they have, then I think, just like you do today... Doctors have to sign off uh, anything that any any decision to uh, some somebody higher up has to sign it off as that makes sense. There's been due process. This is the treatment we will take, and I think we've got to make sure we do that. We have to apply those types of processes as we develop the AI. 
That's quite interesting because we've had a, a few Twitter questions for you. And one of them was, let me just find it here. This is Amanda Greenbridge. I'm sure she's submitted questions before so to other po- uh, our other podcasts. So it's good to know we've got regular <laughs> people interested yeah. in this. Yeah, Which is, can AI be used to produce human disease pathways using AI to collate available data and develop inclusive information sharing and personalised drugs programmes? Because this is a future she would like to see. Well, there's an awful lot packed into that question. Mm. The answer in principle is yes, right? AI can do that. And we talk about AI as being a way to save money in the health service, to increase the quality of service uh, for you know less spend because there is not an infinite pot of money, whatever colour your politics, there is not an infinite pot of money to put into some, a system like the NHS. But we have more people living longer, more ways of sophisticated ways of treating diseases, and everybody should have a better quality of life as a result of that. AI can hugely reduce costs and do things that today has to be done by a human being. It takes a long time. AI will do it faster and potentially more efficiently. The research shows that AI is as good, if, if not better, than human beings, but there will still be mistakes which need to be checked, and that's, that's what we were talking about before. So that's a Freudian slip there instead of good. Well, you said God. Did I? Yeah. <laughs> I will be God. That's well, okay, that comes back to the general intelligence. It yes. does, doesn't it? Here's another um, question we had. This one from, I've grouped these not together because these are more of the sort of gloom and doom ones. Avril Russell, um, she wanted to know what will happen if we build and unleash an intelligence that outpaces human evolution. Jeff Bannis also said, what do we do if AI machines tell us AI will ultimately eradicate humanity? And Rob Spence, can AI ever totally take over a system? So this is control again, isn't it? (laughs) Well, coming back to what Lord Brown said, potentially it is an infinite time before AI can do, you know, take over uh, doing everything that human beings do. But as I'm making the point that along the way, there are going to be crossroads at which if we're not careful, we'll give more power to the machines than we want to. If, I mean, what Stephen Hawking said at the extreme and uh, others have said, uh, Elon Musk has said, I think, if we could achieve general artificial intelligence, then machines would potentially out-evolve human beings because we're biological and we evolve quite slowly. And machines, if they could evolve much faster than we can... I always like to point out, if you remember, if you're a Doctor Who fan, the problem with the Daleks was they couldn't climb stairs, you know. So there's a long way to go with um, with it. And, and as, Not in the most recent episode. No, no, so, they, yeah. they've learned how to do it, but that's the point, you see. But, I mean, there are lots of things that could wipe us out on this planet long before, long before we can build general artificial intelligence. Well, that's quite and, cheery. And hopefully <laughs> um, artificial intelligence will help us sort out some of our problems, like climate change, like... Uh, better quality uh, medical uh, care for more people. Uh, There's an awful lot to be hopeful about, but my point is we cannot early enough think about how we do this in a socially responsible way because just as with climate change, we've done so much. Look at the quality of life the Industrial Revolution gave us in terms of heating, lighting, air conditioning, all the things that are now draining our planet of its natural resources. And you know, 
we have to we have to uh, make sure that we develop AI in a way that's for the good of humanity. Well, we heard um, technologist Azim Azar earlier with his definition of, of AI, and I caught up with him in London before a meeting just a few days ago to discuss some of the issues surrounding AI, some we've touched on today, and and to also ask him, like you, some questions that were put forward by people on on Twitter. Now, I began by asking him how he felt about its perception and why some people view AI as a threat, either economically or in terms of our democracy. I am worried about the misperception and I'm worried that the media benefits from the misperception because it creates more alluring uh, stories. AI is is a tool. It's a powerful tool, but it's a tool nonetheless. It's a hammer, it's an iron, it's a knitting needle, it's a blender. Uh, That's what it is. The risks of AI come from the ways in which companies in particular, but also governments, choose to implement it and what they do with the consequences of that implementation. You spoke at the Global Grand Challenges Summit recently and you did say that the inability to consent to changes was an issue with AI. What exactly do you mean by that? Well, normally we consent to the changes in our world by a democratic process. We vote for politicians, they make some laws. If we don't like them, we vote them out. What we're starting to see is that the way in which we as citizens access different resources uh, is now mediated not by rules that we've agreed on, but by private companies, uh, the, the Googles and the Facebooks and the Apples. And those companies, in their design decisions, are essentially creating or gatekeeping our access to resources. But we don't have a mechanism by which we can really say we want to vote you out. We don't really like this. Now, the most striking example of all of this, I think, is something that's happened in the US. So Amazon uh, sells a smart doorbell. Uh, They sell everything. Uh, The doorbell in question has a video camera on it. So when a a visitor presses the button, it sends you a video feed um, of the visitor. And you can very conveniently from your bedroom say, I'm not in and tell them you're not in. It's very convenient. It's very helpful. In the US, Amazon has teamed up with more than 400 local police uh, stations or police services to create a virtual surveillance network. So now there's a police surveillance network running in those communities where the community members didn't get a chance to check into that. They didn't get a chance to vote for it. They didn't get a chance to agree the funding to decide what kind of remedies there should be. It's coming through the back door. How did they consent to that technology and that service being put into their lives? And does that mean that the images are on that same database? In the case of these smart doorbells, what's happening is they're capturing the images of everybody who comes past uh, and they're capturing the images of the people who approach the doorbell. And in general, those images are being put up into the the cloud somewhere. But what was particularly interesting Difficult, I think, with this surveillance network is that it is a network, it is aggregating the images and it's putting them in places where they could be inspected by people other than the homeowner. Carl Byrne on Twitter asked, what's been the biggest AI breakthrough that you hadn't expected, which I thought was quite an unusual take on it? Those are always the hardest questions. I think the thing that's caught me most by surprise has been the way in which the AI ethics community has coalesced and started to be a force. Uh, Back a few years ago in 2015 or 2016, one of the things I was concerned with was the way in which AI systems were were coming out with lots of um, 
biases, uh, gender biases, race biases, age biases, uh, lots of problematic ways in which they were being implemented from a purely engineering perspective. And that gave rise to lots of discussions around, around AI ethics. Uh, by 2018, so only a couple of years later, there was a very strong AI ethics movement. Large companies were saying we need to think about this. The researchers were thinking about this. There were programs in universities. And I think the activists, academics, uh, AI specialists in that field did a really tremendous job in not just raising awareness to the issues, but also galvanizing a meaningful response so that those considerations are now in the design and engineering uh, modalities by which these products come to market. So effectively, you're saying that people responsible for AI didn't necessarily think through all the implications. And um, I suppose this might sound a bit rude. They're making it up as they go along. Well, yes, I think back in 2015 or 2016, they weren't thinking through the, the ramifications. And I would have predicted that things would be much, much worse and would be having to shout much harder by 2019. The problem is not fully addressed, but we're in a much better position because the AI ethics community managed to come together and tell stories that people could understand and activate us to say, look, these are important issues and we have to figure out how we address them. So the good news is that while the battle is still to be fought, the troops have been assembled uh, and are ready to fight. Sarah Rose Gregory basically picks up that point. She asked on Twitter if AI is only as good as what they're programmed to be, what safeguards are in place for preventing, replicating the structural limitations, which you sort of touched on, but not just yeah. that. She said supremacy and patriarchy as well. We decide the values, uh, humans, and so we have to have the debate about the values that matter. And while it's true that AI can absolutely reinforce the structures of the past... It can do something else that I think is really interesting. It can lay bare, lay transparent the, the framework, the architecture of the past, and we can expect that and say, do we really like it or not? And I'll give you a very simple example. Some academics used some machine learning techniques to understand the relationships between words as discovered in written English going back many, many, many years. They looked at millions and millions of words, and they discovered that there were relationships such as man to woman was similar to king to queen, but it was also similar to doctor to nurse. And, and so what we're seeing is, unimpeachably, that the corpus of English language documents captures this structural bias that suggests that if you're a healthcare professional and you're a woman, you're a nurse, and if you're a healthcare professional and you're a man, you're a doctor. The great news is that people used to argue about whether that really was a bias that was evidence in the text. And we now have evidence that it is a bias and we can move on and we can say, do we like that or do we not? And I think we can use that evidence to say, let's now fine-tune our systems to you know, represent the world that we want to live in. That, that ties in, actually, with what um, Rob Spence wants to know, which is that can AI ever totally take over a, a system? Because he thought that a human input surely must be necessary to prevent disasters. And I know this leads into this mm -hmm. AI is going to, you mm -hmm. know, take over the world aspect. But it, it is a genuine concern. It is a really valid concern, this question of control. We already have design systems where humans have very little say in what actually ever happens. If you look at a company that does a bad thing, for example, they cut someone's line of credit off early, try to get that company to tell you which person was responsible for cutting that line of credit. And they will not give you an answer because they won't be able to give you an answer because they've created a set of processes internally that 
remove human agency and individual human responsibility from the decisions that are taking. The way that stock markets behave and we start to see these accidental what are known as flash crashes when very simple trading algorithms go awry are often out of control of human systems. So we've already started to build uh, and live with systems where the individuals responsible say, listen, I don't have that responsibility. And I think what we can do as we build AI systems into the world going forward is saying, actually, it's really important to have, maintain some kind of thread to a human who is responsible and will say, listen, the buck stops with me for this decision. Which leads us to an issue of what rights those of us who use AI actually have Mm. when we're dealing, like you say, sometimes with machines rather than human beings. I'm going to take that question back away from the the, the simple problem of of machines. I mean, in a sense, a company is also a machine because a company is a set of processes that passes information around and comes out with particular outcomes. I mean, abstracted away, it's identical to a physical machine. And we've allowed companies to have rights and responsibilities that are often in conflict with individual people. Now, we can't extend that to AI systems. We shouldn't allow that to be extended to AI systems. And actually, we should go even further and say, listen, if it doesn't make sense to extend it to an AI system, we shouldn't have ever allowed companies to have those rights and responsibilities vis-a-vis our own individual rights in the first place. So again, I see that the challenge with AI here actually being an opportunity to go back and say, look, we have allowed these non-human institutions like technical systems and companies to have too much power relative to the individual. We're in an era of fake news where Mm. people are worried about the algorithms that Mm. certain social media companies use because they they affect social change, they Mm. affect democracy, they change people's views. So in that respect, the AI is only as good as the morality of the people who who construct it and who who use it. Do we have or should there be some sort of, I hate to, a regulator, I hate to say like Ofcom or something like that, that actually says, no, this is not right? And who decides that? Well, we're in this odd situation today where it's being decided by very bright people in a handful of American companies. And one can just look at that and say that's not really the way that a uh, decisions should get made. Uh, decisions like this should be made in the realm of politics, which doesn't necessarily mean politicians. It means people who are interested, who have new different perspectives, who can participate, and where the goal is not simply one of profit maximization, where the goal is in some sense a societal goal that gets articulated through that. Now, whether we do it through a regulator or through some other mechanism, I'm I'm reasonably open-minded, but it's clear that society needs to set the rules, companies need to implement those rules and have systems that ensure they're they're complying with them, and someone else has to check that companies are adhering to those rules and then be able to enforce any sanctions that are required. Maybe that's a regulator, maybe that's some other type of body, but uh, we need to separate out who does, does what. But basically, we as a society need to engage more see its benefits, but also see where we have to, where necessary, take control. Oh, I hate to use that phrase, take control, but, but to limit it where necessary so that we're collaborating, I suppose, rather than more of a, it's a tool. What's wonderful about the Royal Academy of Engineers is that it's about people engaging with these 
technologies, which as, as a whole society has not done. And really, since the 1960s, we have moved into a much more technocratic view of the world. And we've said there are experts who go off and figure these things out. And we as society are not going to engage with those experts. We're going to move into the big brother celebrity love island, Kim Kardashian economy, rather than an economy of inquiry and examination. Uh, technology is far too important to leave to technologists. Consumers and citizens have allowed themselves to be lulled into this uh, sense of immediate uh, hedonism. Uh, press a button on your smartphone and the pizza appears within six minutes. And the problem is that there are no free lunches. Um, and the result of us not keeping an eye on what's going on and not being active is that we find ourselves in 2019 saying wait a second, I don't have the control that I thought I had. These things are being done to me and I don't seem to have a voice in it. And the, I, I don't think this problem is solved solely by slapping technology companies, which I think is something that, that they often deserve. It's also addressed by individual members of the public starting to say, I'm going to understand the detail, I'm going to understand the debates and I'm going to participate. So how do you see the future of AI? Do you see it as something that we will get right because we're having those conversations now or do you see us at a sort of knife edge effectively of it could go down uh, a slightly more sinister route if we're not careful i don't think we've got much risk of the sinister you know red, glowing red eyes route that often is portrayed in the, the cinema and um, i think the real question is um this is going to be about power. And during the industrial age, we had industrialists who took power and we had industrialists whose power was kept in check by people and by politics and by activism. And we're going in through a similar transition now. And the question is not whether we'll have plenty of AI and whether it'll be wonderful for us. So we will have plenty of it and it will have the potential to be wonderful. It will be a re really about the nature of how we divide up the the rewards, financial and non-financial, and, and ultimately the power uh, in that system. Uh, and if you're an engineer who's building these, these types of things, that may feel curiously divorced from your day-to-day. Your -day. But in reality, it isn't. In reality, you build the system that is at the coalface that will be used in the case, for example, of a translation system billions of times a day by people from their smartphones. You have to think quite hard about the choices that you're making and the way in which you're trying to keep your organisation in check as well. Azim Azar, do you agree, Wendy, with Azim when he said that technology is far too important to be left in the hand of technologists? Well, because I think I said it in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> yes, oh, he's, uh, he's quoting a... <laughs> me. Uh, I quote uh, Karen Spark-Jones, my mentor and friend from uh, Cambridge who's work on information retrieval. She's one of the women who's not cited enough in history. Her, his work on information retrieval is in, in, in every mobile phone, every speech uh, recognition system you use. But um, uh, she had a phrase that computing was too important to be left to men. And I remember wearing that T-shirt. And that's not to denigrate men. It's to say it's too important. Everybody needs to be involved. And my, the phrase I've used for AI is that AI is too important to be left to the, the AI experts. We absolutely have to think of it in a socio-technical way. Everything we do should be tested in terms of how socially responsible it is or maybe. Well, uh, Azim just briefly did sort of pick up on that about structural bias. And when you were both talking at the Global Grand Challenges uh -huh. Summit recently, um, you were one of the speakers who was very strong on diversity mm -hmm. and, and the development there. Why do you think it is so important to get diversity involved, particularly when, when most people think of 
the Facebooks, the Googles, the Twitter, it, it's, it is, it's all men. Well, you've just answered your own question because the nature of those companies reflect the nature of the people that founded them. You know, they're not necessarily bad people, but they have their way of thinking, and that's how the, how the company it has evolved its way of thinking. It's important with any technology, uh, particularly computing technology. We have so few women in the West involved in computing, and even around the world, women involved in actually developing the technology, and loads and loads of people trying to change that and get girls interested in coding and and uh, in working in the industry generally is so important. But for AI, it's even more important because of issues of bias, because of issues of bias in data, bias in algorithms, and we are all biased in the way we think. So um, machines learn from what we do. So if they only learn from a small section of society, then they won't be fit. What What is developed will not be fit for the whole of society. So even if we haven't got... Um, a lot of diversity in the teams doing the programming. We need diversity in the teams doing the design, the testing, evaluating what people, you know, the behaviour of people when they use the system. We need that to be diverse, not just in terms of gender. It needs to be diverse in terms of culture and race, ethnicity, religion, uh, age, disability, uh, so many different factors. And we've got to make it an inclusive industry. I mean, I agree with you there. I made a a Radio 4 programme a couple of years ago with Anjana Ahuja, who's uh, Mm -hmm. FT columnist and we were both shocked when we discovered that the early algorithms that Facebook was using didn't basically recognize dark skin and so consequently when there was an image of somebody that was black they were identifying them as a gorilla which is (laughs) shocking even now just saying that I still can't believe it but it does show you that the people who were programming and yeah. doing the algorithms were probably basing it on images of themselves. And yeah. I can only assume well, that it was images of white, yes, young white, of men. white, white or in China it's young Asian men. I mean, yeah. it's, so how do you do this? How do you change it though? It's easier. I mean, engineering has done its best; is doing its best to get more women involved in engineering. But it is easier said than done. So how do you get far. women into AI? I've been trying to do this for 30 years get more women into computing and and i feel like i failed miserably we are making some inroads but we still have very few women coming to read computing at university and and so the pipeline to go on to advanced courses in ai is tiny there's so few women going on to those there are many different ways of tackling it there is no one answer um, and clearly nothing has worked so far it's a culture change and actually Changing a culture is when it's so fixed. Uh, you have to. You've got to change uh, the, the children themselves, as, and students, the teachers, the parents, parents yes. the um, industry, uh, the universities. You know, I mean, we, I just come from. It was in Southampton yesterday, and we have a record number of students. It's scary coming to do computer science. And our AI MSc is bulging at the scenes. We've taken two or three times as many students as we would normally. But I'll bet you the diversity is really low. And it's not the same all over the world. I go to India, I go to Malaysia, I go to Singapore. There's lots of women get involved in computing and therefore will go into AI. But in the West particularly, it's really bad. Now, what we've done in the sector deal, well, in the review I did, we did for AI, we actually put in, as well as needing to set up new PhD schemes and masters in new masters programs, 
for getting machine learning programmers into industry, we also put in a, a stream of conversion courses, starting at master's level, but don't it could be um, continuing professional development, where we where we ask um, the universities and colleges to set up programs for non-science and engineering students to learn how to get into the work of a, into the field of AI. I think that's a brilliant idea. And we got £18 million from, in Theresa May's last uh, giveaway budget at the end of her term, and that's now, we will, you'll see stuff coming out for these conversion uh, courses to be developed at our universities and colleges. And I'm so excited by that. That scheme's going to develop over the next year, and hopefully the courses will start next uh, October. Brilliant. Now um, it's a drop in the ocean, but it's I know, a... but it's a good start. It's yeah. a good start. Now I've got time for um, hear a few more questions um, that were asked by Twitter. It was great, actually. We got an avalanche of uh, responses. One of them from Michael Field was about how to remove bias from AI, which we've we've already addressed. Yeah, um, diversity, diversity, diversity. Yeah. Well, here are a, a few that I put to Azim as well. Um, the first one I put to him was from Claire Ainsworth, who asked whether AI could ever become so sophisticated we had to consider its welfare as well as our own. And she admitted that this was a speculative question, but I rather liked it. You know, we consider the welfare of things when we start to get a sense that they may have a little bit of agency, they may have nervous systems, they may have the ability to plan and the ability to feel pain and socialise. And that's why we start to consider the welfare of certain classes of animals, but less so, uh, you know, other types of living things. Uh, And so you could imagine that as AI gets more and more sophisticated and it starts to have those attributes in ways that we can sort of tangibly put our arms around, we might start to think about that. Uh, But the other thing that we might want to consider is once AI systems become part of our ecology, part of our ecosystem we might consider their health in the same way as we consider the health of, of the soil or the water runoff in a, in a field as an important part of that local ecology. So I could imagine we'd consider, could consider the health of our AI systems in, in a similar fashion. Sciences Simple said, how do you deal with uncertainty in AI? While we accept that the human mind is flawed, we are very quick to judge a machine that makes the, quote, wrong decision. I don't know the extent to which I judge machines uh, for making the wrong decision. I mean, judgment is uh, something that you have to apply to things that are sentient, that have agency, that have decision-making capacity. So I don't judge my hammer uh, when I miss the nail. What I can do is I can say the system has been designed poorly and implicit in the word design is a human being or set of humans who have allowed it to get into the wild. Jessica Tyas, are there any areas or task types, etc., where you don't think AI should be used? Well, AI today is full of the shortcomings of the people who designed it. And I'll give you a simple example of that, which is you've got a, essentially got an engineering system that you're testing against a bunch of scenarios to see whether it does a good job in them. Testing takes time. Time costs money. So there's always a trade-off if you're an AI developer between how much testing do you actually do before you push something out into the wild. And so the more we care about the outcome, the more it deals with uh, situations that are not very resilient or people who are a little bit vulnerable, we have to think, has the appropriate level of testing been done to make this system perform in an appropriate manner? Now, I got a question that I must admit I didn't understand myself because it said, is Godel incompleteness relevant to AI? Why? 
So you have to explain to me what girdle incompleteness is. Or maybe... maybe no, uh, I mean, the girdle incompleteness... Oh, thank you. I can't yeah. even pronounce it. Then. Yeah, so it's this um, idea that you can't um, define a, a, a system of logic that includes itself. So you always have to have some external reference. And I think it is... I'm not a sufficiently strong mathematician to talk about that. But what I do say, and I think I probably have come across in the conversation today, is that AI is... Um, a really powerful and relevant tool and our discussion should really be about how do we put these powerful tools into the hands of enough people and the right people to get to the kind of society that we want to get to that addresses the sustainability issues and equality and distribution and so on. Um, there are a whole bunch of incredibly interesting philosophical questions of which this is one, but in general not are ones that will have an impact on where we go over the next four or five years. Okay, right. There's Azim under the spotlight there. And now some final Twitter questions for you. This was from Southwark Bell. As an AI professor, um, she was curious to know, do you have Alexa in your home? No. (laughs) And I was thinking about that last night, and we haven't talked about much about privacy and data sharing. There was a previous question I was going to pick up on about how we do data sharing in the health service to enable companies to have access to the data they need to build the algorithms. Um, It's a really difficult problem. And I am... I'm quite wary of having one of those in my house because I just don't know who's listening. That's so funny to come from a professor, expert. His, Look, this one's from Debbie. Because I know how they're built and yeah. I know that they, we have no control um, in this, in, you know, where we are over what the Googles and the Amazons, what, what their real well, It's like when someone doing. spotted that there was an interview with... Um, I think it was Mark Zuckerberg, and they noticed that on his computer behind him, he'd put a little bit of blue tack over his camera. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You think, well, if you're doing that, should we? But, you know, I, 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 hope, I don't know if we've got time for this, but there's a new thing. All the companies are now offering us two-stage authentication, right? The basic way they're offering is you, you put in your password or whatever, and then they send an SMS message to your mobile phone, which you then get a oh, number yes, to yes. type in. So two-phase authentication. Now, that means they've got your mobile phone number. Yeah. And we found out last week that Facebook are giving people those mobile phone numbers, right? Yeah. Now, it's power and control in data, isn't it? And, and all the security experts say, well, actually, this is about control because they've just mm. got another piece of information about yeah. you. And so that is not the way we should be doing two-phase authentication. And that was a, a lesson for me. And Alexa and Siri, I mean, you know, I just... We've almost I've got a material for a whole new podcast on this. <laughs> um, actually, here's a, a question from Debbie Jones, which fits into this. She says, is it AI that we have to fear or the motives of the investors and those who own the payroll. Well, what's so interesting is that we need companies to sign up to um, certain ethical standards for AI or socially responsible standards we might start off with because we need to understand, there has to be transparency in what they're doing with our data. In Europe, we've got got GDPR. Uh, In Europe, a company would have to tell us what they're doing with our mobile phone number, right? That has to be explicit. America, they have to say they're compliant, but Facebook and GDPR are miles apart, for example. And, I mean, GDPR actually is probably too stiff a regulation to enable innovation, but we we need to mandate some 
regulation in this space about data across the across the globe and i would include china in that china's got to be at the table because there's so many people living there and we're going to increasingly buy ai services and technologies from china and india so i think the key thing is though it's easy to it's easy to pillory facebook and say it's all their problem you know a lot of people use facebook and love what it enables them to do and Facebook has to make money. It's a company. It has shareholders. So you can, it's nobody saying a company shouldn't make money, but it is about signing up to some ethical framework. And we have to agree there are some emerging global ethical uh, proposals for global ethical frameworks, which are very embryonic, will be very simple to start with. But I really think um, our governments have got to push for this. Professor Wendy Hall, thank you so much for joining me. I really enjoyed that. And my thanks also to Azim Azar, the technology entrepreneur and producer of the exponential review newsletter and podcast thanks for listening and do join us again for the next episode of the create the future podcast <music>